welcome to the Women Leadership Nation's Breaking Barriers podcast. Our podcast was created to provide a safe space where women can share inspiring stories, real life experiences, and new ideas for how to break barriers, overcome challenges, and grow their career and selves. The podcast features incredible interviews with inspiring women, as well as a series of sessions that are focused on how you can grow as a purpose-driven leader, how you can advance your career, and how you can achieve all the goals you cite for yourself, personally and professionally. We're just getting started, and we want you along for the journey. Follow us on Instagram at LatticerJennifer, and also visit our website at womenleadershipnation.com. Nicole McKinney is the founder and president of Waking the Unconscious. Nicole is a passionate, dedicated, senior digital and marketing strategist who has enjoyed more than 20 years of experience as a leader and strategist on behalf of clients across North America. In the last year, Nicole has dedicated to pivoting her business to embrace the change technology is demanding to lead into the future. For her, that focus has always been about women and those that are the other. Her Marcom business was founded because there were so few women of color leading and creating solid content for women. In 2019, Nicole founded and launched the not-for-profit called Waking the Unconscious that has a core premise to focus a lens on both the systemic and the relational dynamics of elements like anti-black, and the unconscious bias. Specifically, unpacking the privilege and marginalization, allowing for critical examination, and an understanding of intersectionality. Nicole's work is inspired by the legacy of her father, Dr. David McKinney Jr., a renowned academic in the U.S. and Canada who ended his career at the University of Guelph. With a career-long focus on anti-Black racism, he worked with organizations such as the Black United Front in Nova Scotia and pioneered research in police brutality. He also advocated for human rights in conjunction with Daniel G. Hill and took on several major court cases, including the famed 1990 Supreme Court case, McKinney v. the University of Guelph. And now I would like to welcome... Nicole McKinney to the Women Leadership Nation's Breaking Barriers podcast. I'm always looking for stories or information and I came across your name and saw you saw something you posted on LinkedIn. And then I looked more into some of the stuff you've you've been posting and some of the things you're doing and I was like so inspired by you. I you. I, I think the world I I was like okay I definitely want her on the podcast. That would Thank be amazing. You so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, we're, we're all trying our best. I think all of us are contributing in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing an amazing amount of work on on what you believe and what needs to be done um, on change. And I think it takes all of us. It, it's yeah. you know they talk about like a village to raise a child, mm-hmm. and I think all of us. There's just so many um, challenges. We're just in such a strange 
um, moment in time right now that I think that all of us have collectively have to kind of look differently. And I think that COVID has been a gift in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that it has allowed everybody to kind of shift their priorities. I think we lived in such a me um, uh, society. We lived in such a material society and don't get it wrong. I love beautiful things and, yeah. and, and all of that, those things are lovely, but I, I think that the humanity within all of us has been lost. Mm-hmm. I and um, some of that for us being forced to um, stay in our homes, reconnect with those who we love, um, having to make um, sacrifices, some people extraordinarily vast sacrifices um, has changed the, the perspective on how we perceive what's really important. And it's shine a spotlight on the challenges as well. So where there are vast disparities, those disparities have grown and have made it easier for those who were not able to see to be able to see now. Mm-hmm. And um, that to me is a huge gift because that means that people like you and me can do the work that we're doing and have um, a, a more open um, reception to an understanding of how how there, how these disparities manifest and what can we do to um, create more equality in society. So. Yeah, no, it beautifully said. I, I completely agree with you. So I'd love to ask you when you were younger, what did you want to be? I always wanted to be in fashion. My life. So from the time I was two, I have pictures. I think I might even have a picture I can show you on my phone of um, me wearing like beads. I had a handbag. I always had a stuffed animal. I've always loved animal. I've always loved fashion, bags, shoes, jewelry. So for my entire life, I always wanted to be uh, uh, um, creative. Um, I loved beauty. I loved design. And it's just part of my DNA. It's inside me. It oozes out of me no matter what I do. And anything that I touch, everything that I feel, everything I see is, is with that lens. And uh, so that was my lifelong dream. So I can see that because your backdrop is beautiful. Oh, so, <laughs> so that kind of speaks to the, the the art and the beauty and design. And so, you know, with that passion, then I'd love to learn your journey. So my journey was exactly kind of how I described it to you. Um, from the time I was a little girl, I always wanted to be in fashion um, my dad was an academic and uh, he was not, he wanted, you know, in my house, you were a lawyer, you were a doctor, you were an architect, you were um, considered what he just defined his definition of what yeah. professional was. Right. And uh, so I was um, always nurtured to lean towards preparing myself to um, get into a career that was going to meet his criteria. Um, But while he was doing that, interesting enough, he was always looking to foster. So he would see a talent and Mm -hmm. he would uh, find a way to develop that talent in us. So I had a strong ability to be able to draw and paint. So they sent me to private art lessons. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a way to kind of um, fulfill uh, that creative outlet for me of um, being creative and to um, help me um, foster it and grow it. When I got to go to prepare to go to university, and in my house, it wasn't a question of whether you went to university, it was what university we're going to go to. And uh, it's which one? (laughs) Which one? And you could go anywhere you wanted. Wow, that's so my um, mother basically. So I was supposed to go to law school. So I applied, I did my SATs, I got uh, uh, I was prepared to go to law school in the US at University of Michigan. 
And my mother came to me and basically said, um, I'm Nicole, you need to go and tell your father that you're not going to go to law school. You need to follow your dreams and go to, to be in fashion and you need to go and tell him. Wow. And so I had to go and talk to my father and we had this like very formal living room with this white rug and French doors. And my dad, it was like, you had to like get permission to go in. We weren't allowed yeah. to play in there. We had cats and the cats would sit on the outside of the door. They weren't allowed to go in where the white rug was. It was like this, um, uh, you know, non, non, no entry room for anybody, but my parents. Yeah. He's sitting in the living room with one of his students and I had to go and tell him and he lost it, like lost it in ways that I cannot even describe to you. And so I obviously went in my room and hid. And um, now we're almost past the deadline. So it's like when you get entry into college, you're getting prepared to go. And I'm really late as to what I'm going to do. And I didn't want to go to University of Michigan. And now we have this mandate, like, where are we going to send, you know, what are we going to do with Nicole? Mm -hmm. So my parents had some friends, my father, um, uh, it was a well-known academic. So uh, my dad was born in 1920 and I'll share that part of my journey later. So he had two families, one at 20 and one at 50. He's African-American and he was born in the Southern U S. So he was raised in the Jim Crow era, um, which is probably one of the most challenging times for African-Americans because it's kind of that transition of racism moving from slavery and Jim Crow being that replacement. So you freed the slaves, but you still had to find a way to, impress, uh, to oppress people, um, especially those of color. And so Jim Crow became that mechanism to kind of replace that. And he's two generations back from slavery, just to give context. So for him, his life, has life's fight um, against anti-Black racism has always been about education. So the um, fears and paranoia. Um, my mother is or Orthodox Jewish. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I come from, I'm mixed race and I come from an interracial family. Um, and uh, so for him, his fear of what was going to happen to us as black children overrode everything. So some of this reaction is that um, a state of preparation to which he had set for us from the day that we were born. And now I've, um, you know, derailed that trajectory by choosing to go into a profession that in his mind was not going to allow me to flourish and be successful in society. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and he had taught at many major universities across the U.S. and he had some friends that were in New York and that were in the admin of a university called SUNY Purchase, which is in uh, Westchester County in New York. And it's a state university, but a well-known university for the arts. And so he made some phone calls and they looked at my, they got my transcripts and they were able to admit me at the last minute. Oh, that's and amazing. So, and the idea was that I entered in to get a bachelor's degree in art history. So the deal he made with me was if I get a degree in art history, he would pay for me to go to FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology, and I could live my dream. So I made the deal. I agreed to it. He drives me to university, yells at me the entire way there about because SUNY Purchase, he, he worked taught at Brooklyn College, so he knew for 15 years. So he was a New Yorker. And uh, Westchester County is outside of New York City and SUNY purchases on this open piece of land just on the border of Connecticut and um, purchased uh, purchase New York. And so it's in the middle of nowhere on this massive ladder. So he's screaming at me, how are you going to get around? How are you going to get everywhere? Like you're in the middle of nowhere. And there were these big Henry Moore um, sculptures all over. It was kind of like it was a really, really artsy university. He was angry as hell. He basically takes me there, finds some people in the residence to help me with my stuff. 
I puts leave, it leaves and goes to dinner and I don't see him again. And how, and, do, uh, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you deal with that pressure of, yeah. Um, I was just, it was just the way it was, right? Yeah. Like, I think that it was like, we just had a very formal upbringing and mm-hmm. I didn't understand it at the time, but now looking back, especially on the work that I'm doing now, I understand when you look at the trajectory of both of my parents' histories, mm-hmm. um, my mother's, uh, my grandmother, all of her brothers and sisters were killed in the Holocaust. Wow. And so if you look at my heritage of the Holocaust and slavery, you've got two profound um, human human atrocities on both sides of my um, um, uh, like ancestry. Yeah. So to be for my father, more so than my mother, because, you know, she was a mother and a Jewish mother, a very Jewish mother. um, Mm -hmm. For him, that fear of struggle that he had. So he raised three kids. Um, in his first marriage of having kids at 20, he raised them by himself. So he was a single father getting his master's and his PhD in the most challenging time for a black man in America. And his parents sent him away at 14 because young boys were being hung, lynched on trees. So he was sent away from his parents and gone to boarding school. So you think about the, um, we talk about interracial, intergenerational trauma, the trauma that he experienced went throughout his life. And so even though he became very successful as an academic, uh, he came to Canada because he was um, had buried my mother and uh, he felt that uh, he was offered an opportunity at the University of Guelph and he was one of seven new international academics to start the social sciences department. So he felt that being here would be a safer place to raise an interracial family. And so he was in the throes of his career by that time in his life. But that trauma, um, uh, continue to haunt him all of his life. And within that haunting and the racism that he experienced here, which was very different in its manifestation and the work that he did around anti-Black racism forced him to raise us in a way that all he could do in his mind was to prepare us. And that preparation meant there wasn't an emotional connection. There was no time for us to sit around and hold hands or talk about our day. Every day had to be spent getting prepared because the world was going to eat you alive as black young men and women. And we had to you know, work harder. We had to um, do more. We had to be prepared. And so at every moment of every single day, there was a story, there was a lecture, there was a preparation, there was a lesson. There was something that was um, constantly um, uh, pushing us to, to, to be prepared. And at a lot of exposure. So we were exposed to the best restaurants and art and the best foods and the best wine so that we could be, We when we went into those environments, they were so familiar to us. It was like we had been there all of our lives. And this is coming from a strong, like I completely understand. And I think if I was in this situation, I would be doing the exact same thing. And I think that it comes from such a strong place of love. Right. It was like a profound love. It was like, you know, if you think about a bear, an animal, and you're protecting its cubs from harm. And Mm -hmm. so how he felt the world was going to harm us. Mm -hmm. And how were we going to be prepared to survive that harm when he was no longer there to protect us? Right. That was exactly that that was. And it was a visceral, a visceral um, uh, need and a visceral um, uh, experience to which there was almost a desperateness to it, to how do I protect these children? Mm -hmm. You know, do you feel that some you've taken on some of that as well? Um, yeah, I like I I think it's changed now because I've done lots of work. I've gone to a ton of therapy. 
Um, it took a lifetime for me to be able to get to where I am today, to be able to talk about the things um, I, I and the work that I'm doing today. Um, and um, I think that um, being a person of color in this world that we live in today is extraordinarily challenging because of the barriers that are created, um, the subtleties to which um, racism operates, the systems and structures that are set up and cultural norms that create barriers on a daily basis um, for those who are marginalized. And I come from an enormous place of privilege. And so there's a really big dichotomy of um, coming from a family where I had very educated parents, where I was afforded the opportunities to be exposed to so many things um, where I had all kinds of lessons and um, like every opportunity could could have been given to me in every aspect of preparation for, uh, of a child um, mm -hmm. was uh, was afforded to me. Yet I was still going to experience have experiences as a marginalized person that most other women, young women of my same age group were never going to have to experience and had to understand. And that's very complex to be, to have to deal with. And, and then you have the, the, the dichotomy of the timeline. So we're going back, you know, 30 years ago. So 35 years ago. So, um, you know, uh, or 40 years ago, um, where there weren't role models that look like me. So, you know, the, the aspiration was to look like you, not to be me. And yeah. so, you know, I was being told that I wasn't smart, that I wasn't beautiful, that I wasn't important, that I wasn't um, um, who I was. And, and then you've got another layer of that mix of like, I'm Jewish, I'm African-American, but I'm not, I'm not being accepted by either side of the community. So black, I'm not black enough to be black. And then Jews, you know, I constantly have to defend my Jewishness. So people will say, well, you're only half Jewish. Well, Jewish is matriarchal. So technically, and my grandparents um, are, were Orthodox and Kohen. So I'm as Jewish as you could possibly get. My mother's yeah. language is Yiddish. And so like, I'm constantly having to defend why I'm Jewish because my last name is McKinney and not Stern or, you know, um, uh, a Jewish last name. So it's complex to trying to figure out like, how am I going to present myself? How am I going to manage all of the variables that are out there that go beyond the preparation that I had? And, um, and then having this very formal structured upbringing didn't allow me to go back to my parents to really talk about it. So it wasn't really discussed. I was prepared for it, but we didn't have, it wasn't, it was, there wasn't that emotional connection. I didn't have that get along gang type of family where yeah. we all held hands. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like deep, deep down that it's, they're doing it because they love it. Oh, now I, yes. At the time, I don't understand it, but yeah. now I see it profoundly. Oh. Like I understand both of my parents um, and, and I, and my father who I through whose work I kind of picked up and carried now, um, profoundly. And I understand it in ways that I could have never understand it before. And it's sad because he's not here, but on the other side of it, I get to carry on his legacy and try to do some extraordinary things to help other people. So they don't have to have some of the experiences. And I'm so well within myself now. Um, I love who I am. I love what I do. I love that I can speak out proudly and say that my name is Nicole McKinney and I am a black woman of, um, Jewish and African-American heritage and that I can yell, yell it to the rooftops, talk to you about it, be put myself on blast. 
And there's lots of people that are, don't feel safe enough and, and are silenced by the pain that they suffer and can't do that. So um, if I can use my voice and the work that we're doing in order to give somebody else a voice and to let them know that it is a journey and we all go through different aspects um, and ways of dealing with that journey, then um, I will have you know, contributed far beyond you know, what I would have ever expected to do. So. And that's beautiful. I'm so that, you know, I, we talked a little bit before, but I looked at some of the work you're doing and I'm so inspired by it. And I think that you're definitely a strong role model for so many people. Um, And so it's, it's, and I'm learning even more. It's so I like, I just, I have so much admiration for you. And so you're, how did it feel when you now uh, have made that decision and you are landed at the art school, did you always feel like I'm at home and this is okay? Yes, I'm following my path. Or was there ever some fear as to, oh, I maybe should have taken a safe route? I was like so fearful. Like I was scared to death because I was with all of these strangers. It was the first time that I had met uh, such diverse group of people because, and creative people, LGBTQ people, like it was my first experience of people truly being themselves mm-hmm. because I was always hiding. Um, I remember like growing up in a town like Guelph, we were the only black family in um, it, like outside of another in our high school. And uh, my dad was always in a suit. He drove a Volvo. And like, all I wanted was my parents to drive a station. You know, those stations. <laughs> oh my God. We had like one of those ugly I, wagons right. with the, the exactly. wood. Right. With the wood on it. And all I wanted was to have my family look like that. I used to be embarrassed to have be around my father. I would always want to be around my mother because my mother looked like everybody else. And all I wanted to do was blend in. And so here I was in this like dorm of all of these different people who were all hanging out together, who had this commonality of love of the arts. And um, so it was like, and I, and going from Guelph to New York city, even though I had traveled to New York, we had traveled as a family, like in summers, we would always go away and travel somewhere. When everyone was going to Florida, we were going to see El Greco. So it wasn't like I was worldly exposed, but I was still living in a small town and a small community and a small life that was very homogeneously white. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm in this, um, you know, uh, uh, technical in this dorm of technicolor uh, and not just technicolor in, in ethnicity, but technicolor in thought, technicolor in um, uh, creativity, technicolor in just uh, 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 how people interacted with one another. And it was like overwhelming. It was like, you know, stimulant, stimulant overload. Yeah. But the benefit of being raised in such a formal um, upbringing was I didn't have that emotional attachment to my family. Mm -hmm. So because I didn't have that emotional attachment to my family, I was able to survive, I think, because I was prepared in some ways to not have to be there because I didn't feel like going home was going to be any safer than being here. Yeah. If that made any sense. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't familiar to me, but being at home wasn't going to protect me from anything because I didn't have that emotional connection with anybody. So it was kind of like I was able to thrive. And my mother left home at 19 and uh, had traveled quite around the world and had lived in South Africa for almost a decade. 
So she had prepared us to leave home. So we were taught how to do our laundry. We had to make our own lunch. My mother went back to work when we were all in school full time. So we were used to being very independent. So I was very prepared to be away. So it was more the exposure, the mental exposure of this technicolor experience of being on this campus. But it, I was able to thrive because you could, um, within the program that I was taking, they had a dance studio. They had um, like Twyla Tharp dancers came and taught in the dance. So you could take Twyla Tharp classes. You could take photography photography classes. And I took some uh, photography classes with a uh, very famous documentary photographer named John Cohen. Um, so you were able to take have all of these creative experiences that I loved all of my life within this example of living in New York. And now I was close to what I love most, which was fashion. So it was, it was like, I was like one step closer so to, to be where my dream was. Right. So um, in some ways it like, it allowed me to get out of my shell. So where I was always hiding when I was growing up and I was always quiet and, you know, I, I was never the girl that was chosen to, at a dance. I didn't have a lot of friends. You know, I had a really, really hard, hard time being different growing up in high school, um, and in and, and, and elementary school and below, um, I was able to thrive because now I was able to be myself and meet all of these people. And I literally did a 360 degree um, personality change. It was, I was like a flower that bloomed. Oh, that's so Being in New York. So, you know what? Um, they, my daughter, she, she's uh, one of my, we have seven kids, but my oh, uh, family, <laughs> but um, uh one of my daughters, she, she always, she kept saying, Oh, I'm going to be an orthodontist or, uh, and she's going to go into the field of uh, dentistry. And you could just tell there wasn't a spark there. She just, there wasn't and but she loves filmmaking and she loves the arts and the idea. I think a lot of people are afraid to just go into it. When I kind of had the conversation with her and said, just do it just go into it. You, yeah. And she loves acting. Okay. Maybe you're not going to become an actor. Maybe you will, but just follow what your passion is. It was also the same thing. She lit up. She started making phone calls even during COVID and she's volunteering and doing, you know, so for you, you, you found that spark, you became the person, you know, and you're surrounded also, I would assume with other people that maybe didn't feel like they fit in either. Right. at certain points. So that gives you that freedom. And so, you know, following uh, when you, once you graduated, what was the, what was the next sort of. So the next step was I got to go to FIT. So my dad agreed. He, I lived up to my agreement. He lived up to his agreement. He didn't talk to me the whole entire time, but he lived up to his agreement. (laughs) And um, I I went to Manhattan and uh, I worked in the fashion industry for 12 years. So on seventh Avenue. So I lived the, like I lived my dream. So I went to FIT, got an associate's degree in fashion buying and merchandising. And then I worked on the manufacturing side. So I did everything that uh, I worked in the moderate market. So we would um, go and shop for the high end, beautiful designs, and then we would recreate them for the moderate market and sell them to major retailers across the United States in large volume. So I worked with most of the major retailers across the U.S. at one point in time. And uh, I worked for two very small fashion businesses, but families who had been extraordinarily established in the business and uh, learned every aspect. Mm-hmm. And the second family that I worked with, father had, um, his family had been in the business for a long time. And he saw the talent in me and took me under his wing and taught me every aspect of making an, an, a clothing. 
And so from the pattern making to the designing and gave me a lot of free reign and exposure to design and create things. So I would be able to create a line of clothing and then sell it to major retailers across the United States. So I literally lived the experience of the fashion business. New York is my homeland. I say that today. I'm a tried and true New Yorker. I have a little bit of a New York accent that never goes away. Just everything about it was just who I was, the food, the fashion, the, the art, all of it just spoke to me in so many different ways. And uh, so I was there for 12 years. And then my dad was getting older and I was dating somebody who lived here at the time. And I decided to move back to Canada and to Toronto. And I got an opportunity to work and run, uh, relaunch the children's wear division for Polar Ralph Lauren for Canada. And they were looking for somebody who had New York experience and was very comfortable with working with New York's head offices. And so it was a perfect transition to come back to Canada because I was able to go to New York on a regular basis and uh, work with the head office with Paul Ralph Lauren. I was, it was a big opportunity for me because I was, I was, I owned and launched my own division again. Um, And uh, that feel let's, let's just like when, you know, when some of these incredible things are happening, are you just like pinching yourself or just, are you feeling like this sense of that? Tell me a little bit how you felt when something. I think that like, if I look back on it now, I, I just kind of did it. It was kind of like, I was trying to figure out how I could get myself back to New York. Cause I had a very hard time adjusting to Toronto. I had lived the huge New York life. I had um, one of my mentors had a home in the Hamptons and I spent my summers in the Hamptons. I had the most extraordinarily 12, years living in New York. Um, the garment center was booming. Um, you know, so I was exposed to the hottest restaurants. Like I lived this extraordinarily crazy tech, uh, technicolor New York life that you would expect somebody to live. I did everything that you could think of that you could do. And so including spending a gazillion dollars on stuff I didn't need, um, mm-hmm. was definitely the life I lived in New York. So when I came to Toronto, it was a really hard adjustment because I felt like I was in the boondocks. Like Toronto wasn't the city it was prior to COVID um, with, you know, um, you know, world-class restaurants and world-class art and culture. It was still, you know, developing itself. So it was like a really, really hard transition because my formative years were really, I went when I was 17, turning 18 to college and didn't come back till I was, you know, in my 30s. So it was a very difficult time period to make that adjustment to live here. And I didn't do it very well. Mm -hmm. So being at Polo Ralph Lauren for me was like a rescue situation. It was like survival because I was here now and I'd made the commitment to do it. And I'm one of these people when I commit to something, no matter what the challenges are, I'm determined to figure out how to survive it. I feel like there's, there are only solutions. There are never any problems. So I had to find a solution so it was more of a savior, saving grace to me because I was able to be in New York on a regular basis. And it allowed me to transition a lot easier because I didn't feel like I had given up something that was so part of the, of the fabric of my DNA. And now I had to re, reinsert myself into something that was new. So it was a really good transition. And I did that for four years. And then I kind of just grew out of it. It was a small division in comparison to the rest of it. And I just kind of like anything, you kind of just feel like, okay, I live my dream. I don't need to do this. You know, to, to, I've got, I kind of got everything that I could have possibly got out of it and what was next. And uh, I remember like going home and I had left Polo and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And my dad was like screaming at me 
one day and saying um, to me, he brought some articles up and he starts yelling at me, if you don't learn technology, you're going to be left out, you know, left out of society. And he's <laughs> freaking out and bringing me these articles about computers and computers were, we were using computers, at, you know, in, in um, at, at, at Polo, but I had assistance. I was at a level where I had, you know, people doing stuff for me. Everybody was bringing me reports. And so I wasn't computer savvy. I didn't really care about computers. And my dad is like, just like literally blowing a gasket on me just the way he did when we were little kids. And now he's in his late seventies. And, and you still listen to him because and I'm listening because I'm like in the back of my head, I'm listening. Part of me is listening and part of me is leaving. Cause like, you know, when are you just going to say, hurrah, you did something great. Yeah. And, um, I was doing some consulting around brand strategy. So that's kind of how I transitioned my career because there was a really strong, uh, companies were starting to look at brands and there was a really strong connection between fashion and brand and fashion knew how to create brand better than any product or service out there. So it was a really smooth transition for me to help brands um, work on how do they rebrand themselves and um, look at that. And there was a guy that I was working with who was working at an agency who was very senior. He had run some Emmys and he said to me, you need to build a digital agency. And and um, so because there were very few women of color running digital shops mm-hmm. or and this is on the onset of computers and and also um, there were very few women in the industry that were marketing products and services to a market who were the largest purchase purchasers of those services. So yeah. our perspectives weren't being injected into the stories being told to create products that we were buying. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very impulsive. I'm very impulsive. And so it sounded like a good idea. This guy had won Emmys. And so the next day I'm like, okay, I'm starting a digital shop. I'll just go buy a computer. My dad said like, here's all these articles. I'll just go get a computer. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that anyone else do that. But anyway, that's what I did. And basically, um, this this person who today stands as one of my most important mentors said, take some of my designers with you and you work together as a group and I'll help you. And so that's what happened. And one of uh, my creative directors, one of the designers that worked for him, that's been with me and is still with me, like, you know, 20 years later. Amazing. And uh um, so I had to learn technology, which is very difficult for me because I'm not, I'm very creative and visual. Um, and then I had to understand the advertising business and then, you know, work within an industry of learning technology in the advertising business. It was not um, a, a, the easiest transition, but we did it. And over the years, um, I still have that company. It's called BCAD Group. And we worked with um, the Brick. We worked with TJX. We worked with Honda. We've worked with the banks. We won some design awards for our work on um, uh, Plan Canada because I am a girl. So we did tremendous work. And one of the the lessons that I learned was that there's this thread that runs throughout your life, even when you think you can't do something. And that thread of experience that you gain from one thing to another was that even though I didn't understand technology and we built software um, at BCAD Group and uh, we built websites and we did big, um, big uh, marketing campaigns, that one of the things that I'm really good at is being able to visually see things. And so my, my um, DNA driver of being very visual, of being very creative, of being very fashion oriented allowed me to see design in a way that other people couldn't see it. So when I'm creating a campaign or I'm trying to do something to tell a story, I see it very visually. And so I can share that visual 
process with my design team who can recreate what I'm thinking and seeing. And I can see it differently than everybody else. And it's kind of that same um, feeling, gut feeling that I just know about picking a shirt that I know is going to be a top hit. That's going to be the next style that everybody wants to wear or buy. And so that skill that was just innate in me turned out to be extraordinarily beneficial in my USP in being in the advertising business. Because even though I would be, um, you know, like a business development type person rather than a creative, in some ways I had creative skills because I could see things in ways other people couldn't and how you could create something and tell a story. And that's that thread that runs through you that when you can recognize and be open to understanding, really understanding what your skill set is and being really comfortable with it, you can malle, it's very malleable to move into different things and, and use it in different ways to your advantage. And I think all of us have that. And some of that early, um, and this just comes to me now, that that identification that my dad did of being able to look and see this this child had this skill and this child had that skill was kind of that preparation to be able to understand that. And I just thought of that now. And so he was identifying it then. And as I got older and I was able to see it in myself, I was able to use it to my advantage without knowing that, not realizing that. Because I, I, um, you know, I, I don't think I would have done it if I had realized that I would have been more fearful about it because I didn't know that I could do it. And I didn't realize how I was going to do it. And people were saying to me, you made clothes. How are you going to build technology? Like, you know, how are you going to build advertising? You made shirts. What do you know about that? You also have the right mindset. Like you said earlier, like you don't have problems. You just have solutions and different ways of figuring things out. And so I think that determination of I'm going to make it work and I'm going to figure it out. And also it feels like you've over that time, you built up that confidence that, again, we the realization that not everybody is perfect at everything. And it's more important for you to hone the skills that you're really, really good at, and then bring an incredible team around you to, to do the rest, right? right. And, Absolutely. Yeah. and I, I completely, I relate to you a lot because I also, I'm a very visual person. And I can see certain things, but then there's other, and I can, I can maybe even foresee some of the things that need all need to come together, but I'll build a team around me to help with some of those pieces. You just, you need to do that. So for you to be able to take that on and you still have that company, that is really remarkable. That's amazing. So that's two decades later. (laughs) That's amazing though. Long time now, long yeah. journey, right? Do, do you think that some the fact that you also worked in some of the smaller uh, companies to begin with in fashion that you learned entrepreneurial skills as well? Did that? I'm sure I did. I didn't think of it at the time, but yeah. absolutely, I'm sure that fueled me because I didn't come from that, right? So right. it had to come from somewhere, um, and uh, so I'm sure some of that um, indirect, unintentionally definitely um bore into me very deeply because um um i i didn't i didn't i was wasn't exposed to entre- entrepreneurs growing up mm-hmm. and my my um my you know um understanding of what success looked like was in professional services right so for for um for us like when i look back on what my father saw as admirable it was prof- you know a doctor it was a lawyer it was an academic it was something that had a degree behind it that had you know structure to it and entrepreneurship didn't have structure to it and is you know tremendous amount of risk 
And so that was definitely not something that I was exposed to. So yes, absolutely. I never thought about that, but that would definitely, there was probably a thread there too that I didn't even realize. Did, uh, did your father get to see you build software? Your company? Um, he got, he saw me when I was working there, but he was, it was in, like later on in his life. So he was in his eighties, he died five years ago. And so as he was quite sick for his, for the last 10 years of his life and a uh, bit tough and still surviving and still doing his own work. And so he was so focused on himself and his health and surviving because he wanted to live till 120 that he wasn't as, um, uh, as focused on paying attention to the finite things. So I think he was really proud of me. And he talked about how proud he was of me very late in life. In what would I had a little book, I, I made a little book that talked about our work, it was just like a promotional book, a printed book, and it was mm-hmm. like, maybe like, um, you know, like this big yeah. 10 by 10 or something like that. And it, um, and uh, I, I had given him a copy so he could read it and see our philosophies and see the work that he did. And he had it tucked in a drawer. And oh. sometimes when I would go visit him at the very end, towards the end of his life, he would like bring it out and show it, look at, say that he always looked and be looking at it while I was there and admiring it and talking about it. And so he wasn't as expressive in his feelings, but so that, 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 that said to me that that's how important it was. And he saved that little book and was always looking at it and it was so pleased and, you know, would yeah. talk about it. So that's, that's so nice. And so how I'd love to learn how you got into some of the work that you're doing today as well. Sure. So um, my dad passed away five years ago and um, he had worked in anti-black racism all of his life. So that was his full body of work. And uh, he had collected a lot of data and was using the University of Guelph as a um, resource to collect that data. And when he turned 65, they, the University of Guelph basically wanted to turf him out because you had to retire and he wasn't ready to retire and he didn't want to lose his data. So basically what he did was he uh, took the University of Guelph to the Supreme Court of Canada to fight mandatory retirement. And there's a court case called McKinney versus the University of Guelph. It's a really well-known case. He had done a lot of other court cases with um, a lawyer named Charles Roach, who was a very big civil rights lawyer in Toronto. And I didn't know about my father's work. So my dad didn't sit down and say, hey, Nicole, let me talk about what you were doing. We had students in our house all of our lives. He was an activist and the things that he was fighting against, I was trying to hide from. And so, because I just wanted to be ordinary, I was tired of listening to what I had to be prepared for. And all I wanted to do was just hide and slip into the world and not be noticed and and be like everybody else. And so I didn't learn or ever really have conversations with my father about his work. Mm -hmm. And so my dad dies and um, I start, but I knew that he had these big legacies, like the court case was a really big deal. He had other court cases. and uh, I just started thinking to myself, I'm, I've been working for two decades, you know, for a long time, I had this company. And like, what was my legacy going to be? So my dad left this big legacy, you know, with all of his work and all of the things that he was going to do. And you start thinking about like, what, how am I going to contribute? What am I going to do? And I was lost. I was just trying to think of where do I go next? What do I do? I was really lost. Literally, I remember walking down a street and I went to go talk to some strange coach guy, life coach lady. And I was trying to figure out, I didn't know where to go or what to do or what I was meant to do. And I started 
listening, I started to hear in like outside in all of the net, I'm going to networking events, trying to figure out what my next thing is going to be. And um, they're talking about diversity and inclusion, and they're talking about um, belonging and allyship. And it just hit me sitting there listening to this. And I thought to myself, how can you be an ally to me if you don't understand my lived experience? And why is nobody talking about that? And why is nobody talking about privilege and marginalization? Mm-hmm. And so it seems so performative in its conversation. And now they're establishing departments. And I just literally, I just got, I was disturbed by it. And then I thought, I'm just going to do something about this. And I'm going to have a speaking event. And I started talking to various friends who, um, and one of my friends went to a couple of events. And it was just very clear to me that something told me deep in my gut, I'm on the right path here. Mm-hmm. So I decide I'm going to do a speaking event and we're just going to have a conversation about it. And then it turned into, hey, maybe I can put together a big summit about this. And then it turned into, hey, maybe I should start a launch a not-for-profit. And before I knew it, it turned into a big organization. Now, my mentor that I told you about that was um, in the advertising industry had said to me over and over again and had been planting it in my ear that I need to be doing something around my dad's work. I need to be... Um, featuring my father, I should write something, I should be talking about it. And like, it wasn't really specific, but he kept saying, you need to use your father in some way to further that next thing. And what is that? And he was planting that in my ear. And that conversation came up in our brainstorming meetings on an ongoing basis. So this is kind of like way in the back of my head. And so now all of a sudden things are kind of moving together. And so the formulation of waking the unconscious became the idea that, and the philosophy that from my perspective, the only way that we can change the dynamic of being able to understand equity is to do the individual work. Yeah. And that individual work means you need to understand your own behaviors, actions, and language, and you have to understand the structure to which our culture is built on. And that culture is built on a white dominant society and the cultural norms that have been embedded into how we operate in every aspect of society is built on that foundation. Mm -hmm. And for those of privilege and those who are white passing, you don't understand that because you've never, that's what you've been taught. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's something that you just take for granted. And again, Mm -hmm. is unconscious. You don't. And that's that waking the unconscious. Right. And so to me, the way to do this work meaning in a meaningful way mm-hmm. with empathy and understanding yet with the forceful hand so that people can truly get to the heart of how change can operate is not by having a diversity and inclusion seminar in your company where mm-hmm. you're giving people an explanation of circumstances and experiences to which most of the people cannot relate They listen for a couple of hours. They go home to their homogeneous community, their homogeneous family, their homogeneous friends, and it's over. Yeah. And so how it has to change is for you to start to do the deep work to be able to understand what are the the, um, barriers that are created for those that are marginalized on a daily basis? And what are the dominant cultural norms? What are they? How do they manifest? And where do they manifest? And then how? And and then looking at yourself and your self identity to figure out like where have I been complicit in creating barriers for others? 
Mm-hmm. And how can I be create an awareness within myself that I'm able to step back and say, okay, here's the cultural norms. Here's that something different. How can I be open enough to recognize that looking at that something different can not only change the trajectory of those around me, but can change that trajectory for myself. Yeah. And so for that, there's a transformation. We like to refer to it as transformational activism, that state where you want to leverage your own privilege to close, to, to close inequality gaps. And so our work um, at WTC focuses on consulting with organizations and getting them to do the kind of individual work mm-hmm. so that you can get to a place of understanding. And when you've done some of that individual work, then we can start to look at the cultural um, structures within the organization. And the people that are now going to be able to make those changes will understand why are they why they're making the changes. They will hire differently. They will create procedures that are inclusive because they will understand how and why they're doing it. And now we're all working to reimagine a new system that's inclusive. I I love that. I mean, so I've also been uh, doing a lot of research and really it comes down to the, the reality that organizations are doing. They think that they'll do a seminar and they'll bring in a speaker or they'll start a committee. And it's, you can't force this on people because they still won't understand it. They don't understand. They don't understand. It's like, and I think that there's this fear, and I was talking about it today um, to somebody earlier that we were interviewing. And there's a one-two punch to this because part of it is data. So Mm -hmm. we're at a place where people cannot understand what I'm telling you today. They can't see it because the decision makers haven't gone through the process. So one of the things that we do is we collect data. So we're taking surveys, we're collecting data, we're doing sessions, we're documenting conversations, and then we're creating um, uh, um, reports through qualitative, quantitative, and ethnographic research that will allow us to show them very clearly, this is what you, these are your objectives, this is what you perceive to be going on, and this is what's going on. And here are some solutions to how you can change it. And it starts with the people. You know, people first with the individual, and and I think that when you start to look at it from that perspective and you approach it that way, then you can start to have conversations because a lot of people um, aren't necessarily racist, but their behaviors are racist, and they don't even realize and it. They don't realize that their yeah. behaviors are racist, yeah. and so what happens is they look at that behavior and they're so fearful that they're going to be called a racist because of that behavior that they don't want to sit back and look at the behavior and separate it from who they might be as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so, and so there's this, and the structures and the systems have said, have, especially in Canada, it's so much worse here because in America, it's very blatant. You know what you're dealing with. It's, it's horrible and it looks terrible because it's so um, overt in its, in its um, manifestation. But here, the, the the daily behaviors are justified. So you're gaslighted at every moment. Well, this didn't really happen. You're just making it up. You're being overly sensitive. You don't really, this isn't really happening to you. And then as the person who, who's being, uh, who's having to experience the, the, the racism, you start thinking you're crazy. Well, maybe mm-hmm. I am so normalized it. that it's right, exactly. So then you start thinking, you're, you're questioning yourself, you're questioning your abilities, you're questioning who you are, and then you stop talking about it. 
you silence yeah. yourself. And now every time it happens to you, you're silenced and you don't know what to do and you have nowhere you can go and you have nobody you can talk to. And now you have to pretend that it's okay because everybody around you has told you and gaslighted you to such an ex- exorbitant extent that you can't, you can't, you have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And, the, and that it, over time, it just beats you down. Yeah. It just beats you down. And so I ha- the, the beauty of, of where I am is that I have an extraordinarily lens as a black woman. So black women have not had a voice. They have not. And using our, my, our, my lens, our lens as women mm-hmm. and my lens as a black woman p- creates a different perspective on how you can educate people in what the experiences and barriers are. Because now you can talk to it in first person of true lived experience, opposed to a white organization who's talking about experience to which, even if they have a strong understanding, they haven't lived. Yeah. And you can't, if you haven't lived it, I I completely agree. How do you, you won't know fully. You won't. And that's in all areas. So for instance, we have, um, we do anti-Indigenous racism work, but we're, we have Indigenous people facilitate it. If we're doing LGBTQ trans work, we want an LGBTQ trans person facilitating. I don't have those life experiences. And so it's not authentic to be able to have somebody who doesn't have those lived experiences speak on it. And I think that when people start to interact and can hear somebody whose lived experience is the reality of what's being talked about, Mm -hmm. it starts to hit you in a different way. And you could sit back and say, because it has to get to your soul where you can actually look back and say, you know, wow, was I complicit in that? You know, you know what? A lot of times you don't even know. Like, you don't know. I, I have to admit something like, so one of my, my best girlfriends going growing up, she she's black and she also, something you said about the commitment and dedication, she had to study. Her parents were super strict on her, super hard. She, um, and I always uh, looked at that as they were just being hard on her. And wanted her to, but even today's conversation, this is why this is so good because, you know, in terms of being able to learn from one another, now I'm thinking about it from a completely different perspective saying, wow, maybe it was because of some of something I didn't even realize. Because they, you have to be better. I feel that way today. When I do a proposal, I have to add more. I have to write more. I have to explain more. I have to do doubly more than everybody else to get the same result. Always. I have to work 10 times as hard. I have to sacrifice 10 times as much to be credible to what you would have to do if you were doing the same thing. And so that preparation was in order to be taken. And then you're still not taken seriously. And then you're still not paid the same, or instead you're not given the opportunity or you're given the performative um, view of an opportunity without any um, uh, responsibility. So Mm -hmm. all of that for, um, you know, black children in particular, and I'm doing a lot of work in the black education system. Part of that is about that preparation of how you're going to be perceived. And Mm -hmm. so the, in order to try and survive, forget about be successful, just survive. Right. And, and so, you know, what, what advice do you have? So I, I completely agree in terms of the companies, they need to not just focus on building a committee and, um, and then, Um, doing some kind of campaign that's supposed to help their corporate culture and branding it. But 
you know, doing, have focusing on getting the individual work done on the individual, the leaders that at the top and throughout the organization, what do you say for individuals that maybe aren't part of an organization that can help guide them? How can they start doing the work for themselves? Well, I think you can start reading and educating yourself. Like there's so much information out there. I think you can make a commitment to say, wow, I have so much, I want to learn. What are, what, how do I learn about my own biases? And then when you get to the point where you take, take, you, you can go online, you can go on our WTC website, we have anti-racism resources, but they're everywhere. There are movies to watch. There are podcasts you can listen to. There are so many amazing books to read. And I read those same books that I'm recommending other people to read, because I think it's really important for me to understand the um, information that I'm sharing and giving to others and what, and listening to the different point of views, because I'm always learning as well. I think you can join organizations um, that are organizations or be, you know, volunteer with some organizations with people of color or with um, Asian groups or with indigenous groups so that you can build some relationships with people outside of your cultural norm so that you could learn about their life experiences and build relationships with them and get to know them and get to understand um, their, their experiences in life. Um, so I think there are like, I think a lot of us um, sit back and kind of watch all of this and say, oh, I want to do something about it. And I don't know what to do. And are so fearful that you get frozen and, and you kind of think about it. And then you retreat back into your you know little space. Obviously, it's a little bit more challenging because we're in COVID right now. And I think Toronto's going back to another lockdown. So everything that you've recommended, you can do from home. You can do from <laughs> sitting right here. You don't have to leave. Yeah. You don't have to leave anywhere. Yeah. And I think that, um, so those are things that you can do individually mm-hmm. and you can start to reflect on your own life experiences. And, you know, um, as you start to do reading, you can compare that to how, how do you, you know, traverse through life? Like, what have you done? Have you created barriers? Can you be honest with yourself to think about your, your privilege as, um, uh, think about how, how, how you know, get a piece of paper and write down all the areas you're privileged and all the areas you're marginalized and start to reflect on that and look at where were you privileged, where you were you marginalized. All of us have been privileged and yeah. all of us have been marginalized. But if you start to look at it, you start to see there's a pattern of where that privilege is and where that marginalization is. And then if you look outside of yourself and take that piece of paper and share it with five other people, you'll start to realize that where 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 the opportunities lay for you opposed to the opportunities for for many others in who started at the same place that you did. Yeah. In their journey. And you'll start to um, recognize, you know, certain aspects within society and maybe certain aspects within yourself. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest part is how uncomfortable it is and how painful it is. I think also too, people are afraid to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing as well. Right. Right. And, but I think the reality part of the discomfort. Yeah. And I think that um, it's important to have some of these, what I would call is like courageous conversations of being open and honest about it. Right. And I think you have to just, I think discomfort is everything. I mm-hmm. think you have to really be prepared to be uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. so part of that, um, there's a term white fragility that's, uh, you know, talked about quite a bit. uh, And that gaslighting is that ability to not be able to sit within that discomfort. Right. And you have to sit within that discomfort to have those conversations. 
And you have to be brave enough to be able to do that and, 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 and sit with the discomfort. And, and when you can, then that breakthrough is, it happens. When you embrace that discomfort, that breakthrough happens. And when that breakthrough happens, then you can, you know, really kind of move forward and, and lead um, and move towards that um, uh, journey of allyship in a way that is authentic, in a way that can be genuine in, you know, dismantling some of the barriers that I'm working towards um, dismantling. But it, it, it comes through embracing that discomfort. And we say that in our work, in our sessions, we let everybody know that this work is uncomfortable and you're going to feel emotions that you're not prepared to feel. And that is okay. And you need to sit with it. And that's when you know you're going to be making progress. Right. And that's when you realize that, hey, this isn't okay. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I definitely, when uh, this podcast released, I'd love to be able to, to list out and provide links to your site and everything that we can Absolutely. do. Because I feel like you're, and I, I think that your father must be so proud of you and everything that you've taken the baton and, and continued to go. And I'd love to ask you at this point in time, do you feel more optimistic than ever? Do you feel like there's a shift happening? Yeah, I think that, yes, I think that this moment in time, especially in the last year with what happened with George Floyd, I say there are two um, pandemics happening right now. One is COVID and the global racial reckoning. And there was this extraordinary, that moment became an extraordinary moment for all of us to bring the, the, the issues that have been, you know, people, so many people have been working on for so many years, but not being able to move that 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 um, move the the changes forward, and I think that you if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, one of the most amazing things about it is that in the '60s, uh, most of the people that were fighting were all black faces. In 2020, it was a sea of um, technicolor faces. It was white children. It was the youth. It was everybody banding together. Mm-hmm. And I think that there, this, there, I feel like this moment in time is not going to come again, but we have this opportunity to do things that we weren't able to do before. And that is incredible. And so to be able to be doing the work that I'm doing, being able to be on podcasts and talking about this, I couldn't have done this three years. This would not be, have been accepted today, then the way it is being accepted today so that I can speak so openly and freely. And that means that there is progress, but there's also a lot of work to do. So it's that balancing of celebrating the fact that we're here today and I'm able to do this work. And then knowing the challenges that lay before us in doing the work and actually having the work make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Women Leadership Nation's Breaking Barriers podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Latticer Jennifer and visit us on our website at www.womenleadershipnation.com. Together, we can keep breaking barriers.